Please turn with me then to 2 Chronicles 13 for our scripture reading today. 2 Chronicles 13, and our text will come again from Romans chapter 8. So first, 2 Chronicles chapter 13. This comes shortly after Solomon passed away, and then his son Rehoboam took over the kingdom, and the kingdom divided into two. And now chapter 13 deals with King Abijah, who's uh, Solomon's grandson. So beginning at verse 1, 2 Chronicles 13. In the 18th year of King Jeroboam, Abijah became king over Judah. He reigned three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name is Micaiah, the daughter of Uriel of Gibeah. And there was war between Abijah and Jeroboam. Abijah set the battle in order with an army of valiant warriors, 400,000 choice men. And Jeroboam also drew up in battle formation against him with 800,000 choice men, mighty men of valor. Then Abijah stood in Mount Zemeriam, which is in the mountains of Ephraim, and said, Hear me, Jeroboam and all Israel. Should you not know that the Lord God of Israel gave the dominion over Israel to David forever, to him and his sons by a covenant of salt? Yet Jeroboam the son of Nebat, the servant of Solomon the son of David, rose up and rebelled against his Lord. Then worthless rogues gathered to him and strengthened themselves against Rehoboam the son of Solomon, when Rehoboam was young and inexperienced and could not withstand them. And now you think to withstand the kingdom of the Lord, which is in the hand of the sons of David. And you are a great multitude, and with you are the gold calves which Jeroboam made for you as gods. Have you not cast out the priests of the Lord, the sons of Aaron and the Levites, and made for yourselves priests like the people of other lands, so that whoever comes to consecrate himself with a young bull and seven rams may be a priest of things that are not God's? But as for us, the Lord is our God, and we have not forsaken him, and the priests who minister to the Lord are the sons of Aaron, and the Levites attend to their duties. And they burn to the Lord every morning and every evening burnt sacrifices and sweet incense. They also set the showbread in order on the pure gold table and the lampstand of gold with its lamps to burn every evening. For we keep the command of the Lord our God, but you have forsaken him. Now look, God himself is with us as our head, and his priests with sounding trumpets to sound the alarm against you. O children of Israel, do not fight against the Lord God of your fathers, for you shall not prosper. But Jeroboam caused an ambush to go around behind them, so they were in front of Judah, and the ambush was behind them. And when Judah looked around, to their surprise, the battle line was both at front and rear, and they cried out to the Lord, and the priests sounded the trumpets. Then the men of Judah gave a shout, and as the men of Judah shouted, it happened that God struck Jeroboam and all Israel before Abijah and Judah, and the children of Israel fled before Judah, and God delivered them into their hand. Then Abijah and his people struck them with a great slaughter, so 500,000 choice men of Israel fell slain. 
Thus the children of Israel were subdued at that time, and the children of Judah prevailed, because they relied on the Lord God of their fathers. And Abijah pursued Jeroboam and took cities from him, Bethel with its villages, Jeshana with its villages, and Ephraim with its villages. So Jeroboam did not recover strength again in the days of Abijah, and the Lord struck him, and he died. But Abijah grew mighty, married 14 wives, and begot 22 sons and 16 daughters. Now the rest of the acts of Abijah, his ways, and his sayings are written in the annals of the prophet Ido. This far in Chronicles, turn now with me please to Romans chapter 8. And we'll read from verse 31 to the end of the chapter. And our text for today will be verses 35 and 36. So Romans 8 and verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities nor powers, nor things present nor things to come, nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. As far our scripture reading. Dear congregation, as we continue to look at this last part of Romans, here Paul is showing us this, this progression, this logical progression, that if God is for us, who can be against us? That's what we began to look at last week. And he said, if, if God has already demonstrated His love by not sparing Christ, but delivering Him up for us all, how shall they then not with Him also freely give us all things? And if he, said, he says, if God justifies His people through Christ, who declares them not guilty because their sins have been pardoned through Jesus Christ, then who is there that can bring any accusation against them anymore? Who is there that can still condemn God's people when God has justified them? Because he says it's Christ who died to pay for their sins. It's Christ who rose again, overcoming death and showing that he accomplished his work and who is now at the ultimate position of power in heaven where he now makes intercession as the advocate of his people in the presence of God. And that's what we began to consider last week. And, and we wanted to focus especially in, in these sermons on that intercessory work of, as Christ 
of Christ as, as the high priest of his people, as the one who now fulfills his work as high priest in heaven, interceding for his people on behalf of his people. And so now here, Paul, he concludes in verse 35, and again, this will be doing one sermon today and one next week on these last verses, answering this question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Because his answer is, there's nothing. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ once Christ has set His love on His people. Christ is the one who chose to set His love on His people. And God's love is not based on us, on any merit in us, any love that we have given to God, but it's God who chose to redeem sinners while they were sinners, when there was nothing lovable about them. And because Christ is the one who loved first, He will also continue to do so. He will also continue to redeem His people until they're glorified with Him. And that we see in the fact that Christ is now interceding for His people in heaven, that His work continues. He has not only done His part and leaves the rest up to us, but He is the one who continues to intercede for His people. And that means nothing, that there is nothing in this world that can separate us from His love. And that's what Paul here is exclaiming about. And so, our, our theme this, this, this afternoon is the comfort of Christ's intercession. The comfort of Christ's intercession for us. And looking at verses 35 and 36 today, our first thought is that there's that comfort knowing that God hears us through Christ who now intercedes for us. God hears us because Christ intercedes for us. That is a comfort knowing that God hears us because of what Christ is still doing now. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ, Paul says. If God is for us, who can be against us? And the reason I read from Second Chronicles is because I want to relate this story and see how God hears His people. In 2 Chronicles 13, the kingdom of Israel had been divided into the two, the, the ten tribes of the north and the two tribes of the south. Jeroboam became king of the ten tribes, and Abijah was now the king of the southern tribes, often called Judah, and he was Solomon's grandson. But there was still civil war between the two nations. And so Jeroboam, here he comes down with 800,000 of his soldiers, and Abijah can only meet him with 400,000. He's outnumbered two to one. And on top of that, Jeroboam makes a plan to, to ambush him from behind as well. Now, Jeroboam, as you read, he was an ungodly king. He had chased all of the priests and Levites out of the northern tribes. He set up the idols of the golden calves so that people would not travel to Jerusalem to worship the true God. But Abijah said, as we read, that God Himself is with us as our captain, verse 12. It says, as our head, but you can also say as our captain. And, and then he says, and His priests with sounding trumpets to sound the alarm against you. What does that mean? Well, the trumpets were a symbol of the priest's intercession to the Lord. They're a symbol of intercession to God. In Numbers 10, verse 8 and 9, God said 
that if Israel ever had to go to war, they were to sound the alarm with the trumpets. And God says, then you will be remembered before the Lord your God, and you will be saved from your enemies. So this is what God had told the Israelites to do. And that's what Abijah did. Excuse me. So the army of Jeroboam attacked from the front and ambushed him from the back. And when Judah saw that they were trapped, verse 14 says, They cried unto the Lord. And the priest sounded the trumpets. So the priests were there to intercede for them, to cry out to the Lord for them. It was the appeal for God to help them in their distress. And God heard them. It says God struck Jeroboam and Israel before Abijah and Judah. And more than, or about 500,000 of Jeroboam's soldiers were killed in that battle. The Lord gave a wonderful victory. And so God heard this intercession. God heard the trumpets that He had given Israel as the means to call upon Him. And He heard that and He delivered them. He had not forsaken Judah in their predicament. But He, he could say He used this as a trial to, to show them that He is for them. If God is for us, then who can be against us? And now here in Romans 8, Paul says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, shall distress, persecution, famine, peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter, yet in all these things we are more than conquer through Him who loved us. And so we see that the Lord here, He heard the cries of the king of Judah and he heard the trumpet. And if, if God hears the trumpets blown by these priests interceding for the people, how much more will God then hear the Lord Jesus Christ, his own son, who is the great high priest, who verse 34 says is even at the right hand of God and also makes intercession for us. God gave the trumpets and the priests as a means to call upon God. And now God also gave Christ. He spared not His only Son, but He gave Him as the means by which we must now call upon God. And if God heard His trumpets, how much more will He hear His only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who now sits in heaven interceding, blowing that trumpet, as it were, for His people. And if God heard the the prayers of this King, who later Himself would fall away from the Lord, but here He trusted in the Lord as their captain, How much more will God hear the interceding prayer of Christ, who is the eternal Son of David, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who the Bible said is the captain of our salvation. And if God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son, He will certainly hear Him now that He is received back into heaven and sits in glory at His right hand. This is the comfort of knowing that God will hear us because of the interceding work of Christ, our high priest, who now intercedes for us. And Paul wants to demonstrate this 
here that it's impossible for anything to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus when he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And that leads us to our second thought, the second place, and it's simply these words of the text, who shall separate us from the love of, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Because Paul claims here that based on Christ's work and his intercession now, there is nothing that can separate you from His love. And He brings out here seven circumstances, seven circumstances that might make us think that God has forsaken us, that God has turned against us, and that we have been separated from His love, that God is no longer there to help you. We also need to notice that here, it doesn't say sin in the list. And this is because if God justifies His people, if He declares you not guilty of sin, that means He also delivers you from sin. That though there is still sin in your life, we are not to continue living in it. And if we are still pursuing sin, still living in sin, if that's still our life, then either we have to say that we're not saved and we do not enjoy this comfort of Christ's love, and that we are separated from God's love still, or, then you are, or either you are so severely backslidden if you are living in a state of sin that you have no comfort or assurance of your salvation. And so it's coming to Christ that we are found righteous in His sight, that we are found washed and cleansed from our sin, and where we receive the grace to overcome sin. But here Paul is showing us the circumstances in life that just so often run into as we sang, but the Lord delivers them. And he gives a list of these very difficult circumstances. And so we can see from this that being loved by God does not mean a life of perfect bliss and happiness. It doesn't mean that life will be all blessings on earth as we uh, see them. And having blessings and prosperity is not necessarily a sign of God's love either. Because Psalm 73 says the wicked prosper. And we see all around us that the wicked prosper. And yet they know nothing of God's love. But it also means that if we have trials and difficulties, it does not mean that God's love is absent or that we have been separated from it. And this is what Paul is showing us here. And I just wanted to look through each of these items that Paul mentions. Tribulation is the first one. Tribulations are those circumstances that really bring afflictions into our life, the trials, the troubles of our, that we run into. And these types of afflictions have caused many people to leave God. These types of afflictions have caused the love of people's hearts to grow cold because they wonder, well, why is this happening to me? In Mark 4, Jesus says, the farmer went out to sow his field, and some of those seeds fell on, on rocky sto- soil, stony soil. And when seeds fall on shallow, stony soil, they sprout quickly because it warms up quickly in the sun, but it also dies quickly because there's not enough moisture. And so it is that faith can, can seem to sprout quickly in some people when they hear the Word of God and they're excited about it, but when these afflictions and when these persecutions come, they forsake God because there's no spiritual depth. There is no true faith. 
And so these afflictions, they reveal their heart. And they complain, how can God allow this suffering in my life? And, and so they leave God. They're only looking for temporal blessings. But afflictions never make God leave us. Afflictions never make God leave His people. And so they're not necessarily a sign of God's displeasure upon you. Now, it can be that there are certain chastisements that the Lord brings in your life. Because the Lord says in Revelation 3, verse 19, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, or discipline. And therefore, be zealous and repent. He's calling us continually to Himself and away from sin. And there's a clear example of that in the Bible of Jehoshaphat, who was a godly king. He was Abijah's grandson, the grandson of the king who we're reading about here. And in Second Chronicles 18, Jehoshaphat made a few mistakes, you could say. He made an alliance with Ahab, who was then the king of the northern tribes, who was a very wicked king, the husband of Jezebel. And he formed an alliance with this ungodly king, and he was putting his trust in man instead of God. And the Lord rebuked him for it. And the Lord said, should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord, and therefore the wrath of the Lord is upon you. You cannot partner with ungodly people. But God will chastise you. You see the consequences that came out of it for his family and for the nation. But then later on, at the end of his life, Jehoshaphat made another, made a business deal with Ahaziah, was another ungodly king of the northern tribes. And he made merchant ships to, to trade goods over the sea, but then the Lord brought his chastisement and tribulations. He, he says, because you have allied yourself with Ahaziah, the Lord has destroyed your works, and the ships were wrecked so they could not be able to go to Tarshish. The Lord destroyed his plans and his work because he had allied himself with an ungodly king again, either for war or for business. But when we think of tribulations, was it outside of God's control that Christ endured tribulations on this earth? Was it because of God's displeasure for Christ that Christ had to suffer on this earth? Or was it because of God's love for His people that Christ suffered afflictions? And if Christ suffered afflictions because of God's love for His people, how then can tribulation separate you from His love? Because it is very love that is expressed by it. And Jesus even prepares us to face tribulations. He said in John 16, In this world you will have tribulations, but, which are afflictions, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. In this world, in this fallen world, we face all sorts of tribulations. This world groans because of the sins. But tribulations cannot separate you from the love of Christ. Because Christ not only suffered for you, but now intercedes on your behalf. And God hears you in your afflictions, just like He heard Abijah and, and Judah when they were being attacked. But the next word He says is distress. And distress now has more of a focus of an inward distress. 
this distress caused by the outward circumstances. And so often we can become so discouraged and so distressed that it becomes so dark inside. There's doubts, there's fears, there's anxiety, and all these things well up, and you begin to ask, has God then forgotten me? And we can't see clearly. We have no sense of assurance, no sense of God's presence. He's in a, as we sang there in Psalter 440. It's also what Israel thought when they were in captivity. In Isaiah, God tells them to sing, to rejoice because of their covenant God and the Redeemer that is coming. But in Isaiah 49, the people say, the Lord has forsaken me, and my Lord has forgotten me. And here they were sitting in captivity in Babylon, and it certainly appeared to them that God had forsaken them. There was nothing left of their land, of their temple, and even of the people, so to speak. They were immersed into another culture. But God tells them to sing because of the certainty that Christ would come to deliver them. So God assured him that by, by saying that even though a mother can forget her sucking child, God cannot forget. He has written his people on the palms of his hands, engraven them on the palms of his hands, united to him through Christ, who gave his own life for his people. And if Christ himself, while in such distress, had to pray, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless not my will, but thy will be done. If Christ, in that utter distress, being forsaken by God, cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where he then tasted the, that wrath of God against our sin, but it was because of his love for his people, where Christ then laid down his life for his people because of his love for them. How then can distress separate you from the love of Christ who endured this much greater distress on your behalf so that you need not experience that distress of eternal separation from God? It's in those darkest moments that we fear that we've been separated from, God, from God's love and when we don't feel his love. And yet Christ now intercedes for his people so that your faith does not fail. And he gives you that comfort that, it, that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And there's persecution. Persecution is similar to tribulation, except now it's a, the affliction brought on the church by the world. It's also one of those people that are reasons why people leave the faith, as Jesus said in that parable. But Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12 that he learned to take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distress, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We do not deserve the least in this world, but God freely gives us all things in Christ Jesus. And to the church in Thessalonica, Paul said, we glory in you and the churches of God for your patience and faith and all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is a manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Rather than it being a sign of God's love separating from you, it's evidence of God's grace and love for you 
and in you, of his work in you to endure to the end through these trials. Shall persecution separate us from the love of Christ? Did not Christ say that if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also? And Paul said in 2 Timothy 3, all who desire to live godly in this world will suffer persecution. No, persecution cannot separate you from the love of God. Because it's for the sake of Christ's love for you that you are being persecuted. It's a trial of your faith. Your faith and patience being strengthened, being tested, proved as real as being from God and not just from yourself. That false and temporary faith will fall away at these times. But true faith is sustained through the persecution and tribulations. Paul says here in verse 17 of, of Romans 8, If children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. And there's famine, hunger. In the Old Testament, the Lord often punishes covenant people when they forsook Him. He would bring famine and drought upon the land. A consequence of His judgment upon their sin, forsaking Him. But there's also famines around the world. And maybe you think, well, why should we go hungry if, if Christ can feed 5,000 people with a few loaves of bread? Why, why go hungry when God is the one who controls the rain and the God who gives the increase? But the Lord said in Matthew 24 that there will be famines and there will be earthquakes in the end days. But Jesus also told us to not to worry about tomorrow what we should eat or drink, but to look to our Heavenly Father who provides all these things, who knows what we have need of. Can famine, hunger separate us from the love of Christ? Christ is said to be the bread of life. He gave Himself for our spiritual nourishment and eternal life. And even as we have the Lord's Supper, that bread and wine remind us regularly of His broken body and His shed blood that He gave for the remission of our sins. That even if we have shortages on this earth, whether it's by fasting or whether it's by famine created by the need in this world, we are reminded of God's eternal provision in Christ. Christ who suffered His temporal hunger so that you do not need to suffer eternal hunger. No famine cannot separate us from the love of Christ, but reminds us of of what Christ gives us as the bread of life. And there's nakedness, a lack of clothing, of daily needs. It also refers to shame, the lack of covering in this world. Adam and Eve were ashamed when they realized they had sinned and they were naked. It revealed the curse of sin. It reveals our unrighteousness in the sight of a holy God. But Christ, bore the shame of nakedness on the cross so that He could clothe you with the robes of righteousness to cover our guilt, to cover our nakedness before the justice of a holy God. And He provides that eternal covering in the sight of God. Remember, Paul said, it's God who justifies. It is God who clothes you with the righteousness of Christ. 
And if Christ bore our shame because of his love for us, how then can nakedness separate us from the love of Christ? And Paul says, peril, peril, dangers. He uses this word eight times in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 24. He says there, from the Jews five times, I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I've been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil and sleepiness often, sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, and besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Paul knew what it was to suffer, but he knew that it was for Christ and for his bride, for the one who died for him and who rose for him and who intercedes for him on the right hand of, of, of God the one who strengthens him to endure these sufferings, so that in the context of suffering, Paul could say in Philippians 4, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In all these things, Paul realized that he was not separated from, from the love of Christ, but strengthened by Christ, through the love of Christ, supplied by Christ. And temporal dangers remind us of the peril that we were once in, when we, faced, when we had to face the judgment of God against our own sin. But Christ faced that peril of God against our sin in our place. He faced that eternal wrath. And when you find refuge in Christ by faith, then you're safe from that eternal peril, that eternal danger of wrath against your sin. Christ who loved us, now also makes intercession for us. And again, Paul warns us in 2 Timothy 3 that in the last days, perilous times will come because of the ungodly people in this world. But it cannot separate you from the love of Christ. And then the last thing he says is sword. The sword refers to death. A sword comes to kill. Death is that last enemy that everyone has to face. It's final. That unknown path of darkness that we must enter. But Christ also came to bear the penalty of death. He took away the cause of death, our own sin. Christ died for His people. He conquered death. And God give, has given the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He rose from the death. From, from, from the grave. And how then can sword or death separate you from the love of Christ? But rather death is that entrance into the presence of Christ, into the fullness of the love of Christ, into the never-ending love of Christ. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Paul says. If the love of Christ is evident in your heart, then all these are only the means to draw you closer into that love of Christ. It causes you to sound that trumpet every time you find yourself in this distress, appealing to God for help, 
knowing that Christ is there seated at his right hand, interceding for you. So one person said, the closer we come to Christ's suffering, the closer we come to his love. Rather than separating us from it, it brings us closer to it until one day you'll be in the fullness of it. Can we then not with Paul and with his people and then call upon the Lord continually to whatever circumstances we are in, especially in, in trials and difficulties, but also in, in the prosperity to be drawn into the experience of the, that love, into the knowledge of that love, because Paul experiences for himself. He, he knew it. And Paul wants to demonstrate that we need to learn this comfort and this truth, not just by hearing of it, but by experiencing of it ourselves, that we can say and know who can separate us from the love of Christ. And that's what we consider in in the last few verses, which we will see next week, the Lord willing. Amen. And let us pray.